Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk as we continue our study in this, um, I think, very powerful minor prophet. They call these, uh, uh, these last 12 books in the Old Testament the minor prophets not because their message is minor, uh, just because they're shorter. And uh, I, I think it's evident, isn't it, as we study Habakkuk, that this is not a minor message that he is giving us, a powerful truth that we need to hear. So I do invite you to turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. You'll find that on page 785 in the Pew Bible if you want to use that uh, Bible. And, and if you're visiting with us and don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to simply take that Bible in the pew rack home as your very own. And uh, so here we are now as we continue to hear God's response to what has been called the complaining prophet, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 5. Hear now the word of God. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and the violence to earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil for his evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourselves and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. 
Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Our Father, we ask even now as we consider these writings 2,600 years old, that you would open our hearts to the truth in which they convey. That you and your kindness to us would help us to understand what is in, in many ways a pronouncement of judgment upon a people long gone. That we would understand the principles behind these words. They would shape our lives. They would form our minds and direct our loves that we too might see the glory of the Lord as it one day shall cover this earth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was the great Augustine many, many years ago who wrote uh, his famous book, The City of God. In it, he speaks of two cities, the city of God and the city of man, if you will, two competing empires, one uh, one empire seeking the glory of God, the other seeking the glory of man. And so you got man's city that Augustine would explain would rise and dominate and swagger a little bit and then eventually would stagger and fall and sink back into the dust and another would rise in its place. But the city of God, however, always advances. It's always under the hand of God, always moving forward. And in the end, there will be only one empire that will remain. In the end, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It seems that Augustine is really capturing human history, that empires rise from the earth, they beat their chest a little bit, right? And they they strut around, they go forth conquering and conquering and conquering. There's always more to conquer. There's There's always a fertile valley, you know, over the next ridge. They're never satisfied. And eventually they stop and consolidate power and and create monuments to their own greatness. They build towers and arches and arenas and so forth, often using plundered goods and oppressed people to create such trophies. Well, eventually another empire rises up, likes what the first one has, and sweeps down and conquers them. This is, in many ways, the history of the world, the rise and the fall of empires. So you think about Egypt falling... And then you got the Assyrians and the Persians and the Medes and the Romans and the Huns and the Saracens and the Mongols and the Turks and the Spanish and the French and the English and the Americans. It's rising one empire after another. And this is, of course, true for the Babylonians, the empire in which God is directing his attention here in Habakkuk chapter 2. So to catch us up, remember it was Habakkuk who asked God, God, what's going on? with your people. What are you going to do about the immorality of the people of Judah? God answers saying, I'm going to send Babylon to destroy the people of Judah. Habakkuk, of course, cries out and says, well, God, how can you use such people? They're far more evil than we are. And this whole conversation that we've been kind of considering over the last three weeks and now into the fourth week, it's, I don't know, if it, it seems very familiar to, to me. Maybe, maybe it does to you as well. It seems like people in our day, they look at the evil and the suffering of this world and say, well, how can God, how can God allow such evil and suffering in this world? In fact, many conclude there must therefore not be God because of all evil and suffering. 
Well, if the answer ever comes up, and, and, and the answer ultimately is, well, God will deal with all evil and suffering in the day of the Lord, and he will judge all peoples according to his righteousness, and he will cast many of them who refer, refuse his mercy and grace into hell forever. Well, are they, are they therefore persuaded? Oh, thank you. Okay, now I understand. No, they, they reject. Well, how can he do that? They say. So they're just like Habakkuk, aren't they? They, they go from disliking what God is not doing about evil to disliking what God plans to do about evil. And so Habakkuk is, has a very modern complaint, it seems to me, and he complains to God. Of course, God is not obligated to answer Habakkuk's questions and lamentations. Many sufferers don't get the answer. Job never got his answer, even though he asked, it seems, for what, 40 chapters, why, why, why? And eventually God shows up and he pretty much says, I'm God, you're not, be quiet. And Job, you know what he says? That's enough. I just need to be reminded of that. Remember, God says, where were you when uh, the world was created? And who created this animal? And, and who co- controls the stars? And in other words, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, so just be quiet. And Job says, I'm sorry. I repent in dust and ashes, and I, I spoke of what I did not know, and I will be quiet now. Right? And so that's often what God, God doesn't always give the answer, but Habakkuk, he gets the answer. He gets the answer to why. What are you doing, God. God says, okay, in his great grace to him, I'm going to join you in the tower. I'm going to show you what I plan to do. I'm going to show you the end. And so Habakkuk chapter 2 is God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint, how can you send the Babylonians to destroy us when they're far more wicked than we are? God's answer is multifaceted and beautiful and powerful and complex. But if I could boil it down, it's really kind of a twofold answer. First, God says, though I'll use the Babylonians to destroy you, their destruction of you is evil. And I will therefore destroy them for it. And secondly, he says, in the midst of all this, I'm building my kingdom, my city, if you will, for my glory. And this is a kingdom or a city that you could only enter into through faith. For my righteous ones will live by faith. And, and, and so this is God's answer to Habakkuk. Now, I think it's important for us to realize that much of God's answer is, is in this chapter, as we just, as you heard me read, is about the destruction of Babylon. He, he's in many ways giving ba- uh, Habakkuk a peek into Babylon's funeral. He has these five woes, right? Now, the woe in this culture was associated with a funeral. It, it, was, it was something you would, you would wail when, at the, the, the loss of someone precious to you. But the prophets of God, and including Jesus, by the way, would actually take this woe, and then they would describe sinful behavior and apply it to those who are still alive. And it's a vivid way of explaining that their behavior is awful in the sight of God, and they are in many ways as good as dead, unless they repent. And so here God gives these woes, and I think he does as an encouragement to the people of God who are about to experience Babylon's destruction, that God wants to put in their heart that they can remain loyal to God in the midst of this judgment, knowing that God will triumph even over their enemies. But what I do want to invite us to realize is that what we see here in chapter 2 is not simply for ancient Babylon, but it is true for all who are Babylonian in their behavior. I think chapter 2 is, though I think is a a historical description of what would happen, it's also very proverbial. See, Babylon in the Bible, though a real empire that existed for about 90 years at least at its peak there in the 6th century B.C., is, is used as a metaphor throughout Scripture for the proud. 
Now, you, may not, you may or may not remember, it was back in actually Genesis chapter 10 that Babylon was founded, at least the city was founded by this man named Nimrod, who was a great conqueror. And then we get to chapter 11. You remember what chapter 11, we, they decide to build a tower in that city, the Tower of Babel. They're in Babylon, and tower to their own glory, a city of their own glory. And so this is what kind of Babylon becomes a, a metaphor for, those who live for themselves, their own glory and their own righteousness and defiance to God. So Peter, you know, thousand years later, writing his letter from Rome, would end his letter saying, the church who is at Babylon sends you greetings. Now he's not in you know, physical Babylon. But what he's saying is Rome is now Babylon. It is, it is the, this, this system, worldly system in opposition to God. So we get to the book of Revelation and we read things like this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, Revelation is not predicting that there's a new empire that's going to rise up and we're going to call it Babylon. No, he's just saying that this, this is the world system that stands in opposition to God. And, and the book of Revelation goes on and says, For all nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immora- immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And so what Scripture tells us, when Jesus returns, Babylon, which is the symbol of human pride and glory, fails. It's cast aside. And so these five woes, which we'll consider here, though they describe the destruction of Babylon, which would take place in 539 B.C., are a preview of the final judgment on all who are Babylonian-like when Christ returns. And that way, I think Habakkuk is helping us to look to the end in troubling times. And he would tell us that we should beware of the judgment on the proud I think God would have us beware of the judgment on the proud. Now, remember, we left off in verse 4 last week. Is kind of the heart of Habakkuk. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So there are two types of people here, those who live by humble faith and those who are puffed up like the Babylonians. Last week, we considered at length what does it look like to live by faith. But the rest of chapter 2 is really about those who are, are filled with proud. So the righteous will live by faith. Those who are proud will be destroyed. Their, their end is woe. And so we begin to consider that judgment here in verse 5 when it says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. That's an interesting phrase there in verse 5. You're talking about these proud, greedy men, that wine is a, is a, is a traitor. I, I think what he's getting at is that, that wine will betray you by leading to overconfidence. Right? Wine will make you think you are unconquerable. And I don't know if you remember the story of the fall of Babylon, but it was wine that betrayed them. It was, in fact, the night before they fell, the army of Persia had surrounded the city, and they were so confident in their fortifications of the great city that they, the king decided to have a palace orgy, and he got as many people as he possibly could, and the wine was flowing. In fact, they were toasting to their pagan gods in the goblets stolen from God's temple. 
And at this point, you remember what happened? <laughs> this seems to be just pushing it a little too far. And a floating hand appears in the middle of their party, which is going to sober you up rather quickly. And it writes on the wall. And they don't, what is it writing? And they don't know. And by, by this point, Daniel the prophet is now, he's forgotten. His Nebuchadnezzar loved Daniel, but his son Belshazzar has nothing, no, no time for him. But they find Daniel and they come and say, Daniel, what, is, what does this say? And he says to King Belshazzar, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, acknowledged God's greatness, but you, his son, have not humbled yourself. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor God who holds in his hand your life. And that night, Persia sacked Babylon without even a fight. His wine is a traitor, and it betrays these people who came and conquered Judah. The nations will be conquered by them, but they will receive judgment at the end. In fact, because the nation of Judah will be conquered, it seems that God is giving the survivors of that conquering taunts to fill their mouths. Look in verse 6. He says, shall not, we have to read this carefully, shall not these, so the question is, what is that pronoun, these, who's that referring to? Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing riddles for him and say, the these are the survivors. These shall take up their taunts against him. That's Babylon. So I, I simply point that out is that what God is saying, what is God is doing here in chapter 2 is he's giving the survivors taunts against their oppressor. So you are oppressed by them, you've been conquered that by them, but please understand that their destruction will come. And I wonder, we know that Habakkuk wrote this down, he was told to write it down, did they repeat these words, these five woes, which we'll now consider as Babylon came, holding on in faith that God would undo them as he has promised. In fact, he promised that there would be a woe to the plunderer. The first of the five woes might be understood as a woe to the plunderer. As you see in verse 6, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those, who, those awake who make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. You see, the Babylonians ruthlessly take what's not theirs. Over and over and over again. And God actually says, by the way, you think you're taking these things, but this is just a loan. And each time you take more and more, you go deeper and deeper into debt. And a day is coming when the nations will rise up like creditors coming for what is theirs. And the debt will be due. And you, the great plunderer, will be plundered, as you see in verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell on them. And so there's a plundering coming upon you. You who take, it will come back to bite you. And what's true in that day is true in our day. You know the persecuted church, for instance, in Thessalonica, was told in Paul's letter that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So let's remember, and even as we celebrate God's grace and mercy, that justice will come, and God will right every wrong. And I wonder if the world would be different if all the ruthless politicians and generals and soldiers in our day and 
days long gone, understood that they will receive the treatment that they inflict upon others. Woe to the plunderer. Woe to him who accumulates more and more and more. I wonder if there's some wisdom in here for us. We who seek more and more. We who may be tempted to pile up things. You see, the proud Babylonians are living under this illusion that more things, more spoils, will make them happy. I'm glad we've learned, right? We don't need any more. See, proud people are never satisfied. As we saw in verse 5, they're greedy like the grave. You know, the grave never says, I've had enough. I'm full now. It's always more. And perhaps you remember growing up with the little 13-inch black and white TV, right? And then we got color. Well, we need color now. And 13 inches, no, we need like 63 inches, don't we? And we want remote control and Blu-rays and surround sound, and we want to stream it, you know, shows on demand. We want to watch it when I want. We've got the home theater and the recliner, right? And, and, we, and we, we plug in our phones and our tablets to the recliner, I mean, wherever we go. And it's just on and on and on and on. It's just more and more and more. We need the next new thing, right? We're, we, we, are, we fight, don't we, constantly? At least some of us, this, this desire for more. I, I, need the, I need it. Our desires begin to twist us. Say, this is what I need to be happy. And are we focused on it? One pastor says, we we buy stuff we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And I wonder, has has it led to any more happiness? I remember when Allegra and I were first married and we lived in in the ghettos of Durham in a subterranean apartment with barbed wire around our apartment complex and we had a little TV that we had to put on our coffee table, and we would scrounge for, literally scrounge the couch for, so go out to McDonald's and share a hamburger. Allegra was our only source of income. She, if I, it's okay if I flaunt this. She was making six fifty an hour um, as an inner city preschool teacher in Durham, and that was it. That's what we lived on. And we, I mean, and we we make more than that now. Okay, and thank the Lord. I'm happy for that, to be honest. But, um, but I, I wonder, has it led to more happiness? There's this illusion that things will bring joy. This is one of the reasons why, you know, I, I appreciate the video that we saw this morning and why I think it's just, I think every Christian, if you're able to, should, should at least go on one cross-cultural mission trip. It does such good for your heart. And you'll go to Ghana and you'll see kids playing with sticks as happy as they can be. And you'll go home and your kids have the, you know, the video game council on the giant TV. And they'll tell you, Dad, I'm bored. This is not, not about what we have in our hands. It's about what we have in our hearts. And I think God is giving us this wisdom. that These proud men who just wanted more and more and more, it does not lead to what it promises. And he also says here, woe, secondly, to the secure. You see that in verse 9. Woe to him who gets, who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. It seems their logic is if we get enough, we'll be safe. If I'm 
successful enough, we might say, we'll be safe. If I'm beautiful enough, I'll, I'll be secure. If I'm rich enough, I'll be safe. Then I'll, then I'll be secure. And so they, uh, God says in poetic language, build a nest on high to escape the clutches of ruins. They, Babylon, we know, have built this massive fortified city that they thought was impenetrable. We might b- build an f- impenetrable retirement plan or something like that, that we might find our security in that. And God says, if you live for that, if you think that's your security, you end up there. We see in verse 10, you're going to forfeit your life. You won't get away with it. In fact, he even says that the stones will witness against you, as you see in verse 11. For the stones will cry out from the walls, and the beams from the woodwork will respond. <laughs> so what, what, what God is explaining is that even if no one sees what you're living for, the walls will testify against you. Right? So Babylon, you can suppress the voice of the people you oppress, but the beams upon which you build your city and the towers in which you rest your confidence, they will cry out to God, much like the first injustice when God says to Cain, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And so God hears the cries of the oppressed. He hears that those who think they've escaped, think they have been secured, will one day encounter the Lord of justice. The third woe that is lobbed against Babylon is a woe to the oppressor, as we see in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? See, God opposes all who build legacies by oppression and bloodshed. He says they labor merely for fire. That is, everything you're giving your life to, everything you're building, it's all going to be burnt up. The nations weary themselves for nothing, God says. Just as God would go before his people as a pillar of fire, consuming their enemies, as God would burn the cities of Judah with fire because of their refusal to repent of sin. So the Lord on the last day will come as a consuming fire in wrath and judgment. The fourth woe pronounced here is a woe to the debaucherer, to, we might say, the degenerate. As you see in verse 15, how contemporary does this sound? Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. It seems that in some sense they're getting their neighbors drunk so they can see them naked. I'm not sure much has changed. Is not alcohol connected with sex and nakedness and sin? We see this in Scripture. We see this with Lot and his daughters. We see this with Noah after he emerges from the ark there in his naked shame. And, and, And evidently part of the debauchery is to insist that others join you, to share in your shame. So the Babylonians are not only content in getting drunk, they can make their neighbors get drunk. They force their their sin upon other people, and they seek to add more and more people to their darkened kingdom. The consequences are explained in verse 16. God says very ironically, I think, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory, right? You are trying to get others naked and fill with shame. You're going to have shame. Drink yourselves and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come round to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. So as they treat others, God's going to treat them. He's going to force them to drink from his cup 
And they will, if you will, lie naked in their own vomit, in their putrid shame instead of their glory in which they seek. God will come and he will judge not only them, but this is a picture, once again, of final judgment. You know, the book of Revelation, as I mentioned, refers to Babylon as this, this world system that opposes God. It calls, calls Babylon the great harlot. We read in Revelation that all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality. Right? In fact, the, the Babylon in this world doesn't only make the neighbors drink, but makes the nations drink of her adulteries. And all who share in these acts will encounter God and his fury. And by the way, he is angry not just at their neighbors, not, not just at their disregard for their neighbors in this degenerate behavior. He's angry at their disregard for creation, as you see in verse 17. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destructions of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. That's an interesting phrase to me. He says, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Why, why Lebanon? They're not attacking Lebanon. Why not the violence done to Jerusalem will overwhelm you? Well, Lebanon is, is where God planted the great cedars. In Psalm chapter 104, the cedar is the most majestic tree of their day. There's the sequoias and the redwoods of that culture. And Psalm 104 says God planted them. They belong to God. But these individuals, they lust for more and more and more. So they not only subjugate their neighbors, they destroy the earth. They clear-cut the forest. And not, evidently, not only the trees you see in verse 17, the animals as well, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. Evidently, they're, they're slaughtering these animals that prose some threat to them. And so God is angry. You see, therefore, the blood of man and violence to the earth. Right? God does not like the way that they are stewarding creation. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, here comes the Californian out of our preacher, okay? But I'm telling you, it's in the text, right? It's right here. And it's not just in this text, it's a biblical theme that we are to be stewards of this world. It's in Numbers, it's in Hosea, it's in Isaiah, it's in the book of Jonah. You remember how Jonah ends? Remember Jonah sitting there and God speaking to him about his heart? And he, God says, should, uh, should not you have compassion on Nineveh, a city with many people and also much cattle? Period, end of book. What do you, much cattle? Who cares about cattle? Well, evidently God does. Does he not? Should you not be concerned about this, Jonah? This total useless onslaught of these animals. God hears the groaning of creation, and one day all creation shall be redeemed. Now, if you're kind of paying attention, you, you'll kind of see some political overtones here, won't you? And, I know I've been doing this long enough not to go too deep into this, but let me just tip my toe into it for a minute. Our liberal friends and neighbors will say that harming the environment is a sin. Our conservative friends and neighbors will say that drunkenness and sex outside of marriage is sin. God, once again, shows that he belongs in neither political party that he is neither conservative nor liberal, that it's all sin. The greedy exploitation of creation and the self-indulgent debauchery. 
And so, my friends, when we pollute lakes and the air and we overfish our seas and we destroy habitat in order to maximize our profits, God takes notice of the violence to the earth, and he is not pleased. We ought to be stewards of this world. And one reason is because this world is made by God in order to teach us about God, right? The creation preaches to us that God is glorious and powerful and beautiful and amazing. We destroy creation. We're silencing the sermons that God wants to preach. The beautiful sunsets and the clean water and the fresh air and the amazing ecosystems all come from the hand of amazing God, and he wants us all to stand in awe because of it. And so woe to the degenerate, God says. Fifth woe to the idolater. It's here, the fifth woe, the last woe we see in verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. So God says, you, you, have, you trust in these idols. They can't speak. They can't, <laughs> they can't breathe. They can't save. And yet you trust in it. It's utter foolishness. In fact, Isaiah, as you may know, elaborates on the, the ridiculeness of idolatry when he says he cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it and falls down before it. Half of it he burns with fire. Over the half he eats meat. The rest he makes into a god, his idol. He prays to it, deliver me, for you are my god. No one considers, nor is there anyone intelligent enough to say, half of it I burned with fire. I also baked bed on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? In, in, in light of what Isaiah says, it's obvious, clear, no, you don't fall down before a block of wood. Who, who would be so foolish to, to, to carve something and, and say, okay, you're my God, and I'm going to fall down and worship you? How can someone be so ridiculous to trust in an idol? We might be tempted to say. Let me just suggest that Babylon was not the only culture that creates or created idols. That all cultures, including our own, create idols. And if we will not worship God, we will worship something else. We are built to worship. We all worship. J.I. Packer is right when he says, what does idolatry suggest to you? Savages before a totem pole. Perhaps you should realize subtle idolatry, he calls it. See, the question is not, what do, uh, question is not do you worship, but what you worship. We all worship something. Many people worship their job, their bank accounts, they worship their sports teams, their hobbies, their image, they build their life around their kids. Colossians 3 verse 5 says covetousness or greed, if you will, is idolatry. And so in light of this passage that God says, woe to those who worship an idol, it might do us well to, get, to think about what is it we give our time to and our energy to and our, our heart's affection to. What, what is it that gives you meaning and purpose? It might just be an idol. We too can have idols, right? Maybe not blocks of wood, but nine men on a baseball diamond or a number in a bank account. We could put our hope in them. That will give me my satisfaction. And God says that's foolish, and he's not indifferent to that sin. The Lord will judge. He will judge all evil. Uh, Every injustice will be avenged. That's what he's telling Habakkuk. I'm going to judge these proud men who forsake me and my ways. And I wonder if he ends here, this final woe in idolatry, because perhaps they think, no, God can't get us. We have our idols. They'll protect us from God's judgment. And God says, you need to understand they are lying to you. As he says in verse 18, 
a metal image, a teacher of lies. They will do nothing for you. They, idols will not give you the meaning that they promise, the purpose that they promise, the, the life experience that you're hoping to get from them. They will not help you. They will not save you, even though you might ask, as we see in verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it. God says, they may glitter with gold. They will not rise to your defense. They will not wake in order to save you. In fact, they will be silent on that day in contrast to the God revealed in Scripture, as we see in verse 20. God's final statement is in his answer to Habakkuk, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You see, I think God would have us not simply beware of judgment on the proud, but rejoice in the triumph of our Lord. I think the second main point of this passage is that we should rejoice in God's ultimate triumph. He seems to be speaking of his majesty. And here in verse 20, the majesty of God, that, that God is seen in Habakkuk in his temple. By the way, the temple in Jerusalem is shortly going to be destroyed by these very Babylonians. And yet God says, I'm in my temple. That even though this destruction's coming, I'm still enthroned. I'm still in control. In fact, I think much of the book of Habakkuk emphasizes God's sovereignty over the nations, over Judah, certainly over Babylon as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher of the 20th century, when preaching through Habakkuk, said every nation on earth is under the hand of God. Things are not what they appear to be. He is seated in the heavens, and the nations are to him as grasshoppers, as a drop in a bucket, or as the small dust of the balance. So God will wield Babylon in order to cut down Judah in their pride. And 70 years later, he will wield Persia in order to do the same to Babylon. In fact, it led the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to confess, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God controls the nations. He's enthroned in his temple far above us. And this is not only true, by the way, of the nations, but it is true of the smallest details of our lives. That God is in control of our lives, your life. God is enthroned. Please understand, he is, is sovereign over you today. And no matter how things turn out, and no matter how bad things get, or no matter how terrible your choices might be, or righteous they might be for that matter, God is still in control. And so Jacob, for instance, who was promised that the messianic king would come through his line, royally messed up his life. I mean, he, he lied to his dad. In fact, he stole from his dad. And then, because of it, had to run away from his brother who's going to kill him. And he would never see his father again. And he would never see his mother again. Talk about a bad decision. And by the way, once he got to the place where he's going, he ended up marrying the wrong woman. I mean, making a mess of his life. And yet, it's Leah, the woman he married, who would give birth to Judah, who would lead us to the Messiah. So here's a man who sinned after sin after sin, and yet God ruled over it all. So I think it's important for us to understand your decisions matter. You, you can mess up your life, can't you? And yet, at the same time, God is sovereign over it. Your choices count, truly, and God is, at the same time, in control of 
everything. And so God would never say, oh, what, I planned this for you, but you chose this. Now what am I going to do? Now, now what should I do? He reigns over it all. He's in control over it all. And one day we will see it and we will stand before him as he uh, unveils to us his plan for not only us, but for all the world. And we will stand in wonder and awe and all of your questions and all of your struggles and all of your confusions will give way to silence before an awesome and powerful and good God. I wonder if we should even practice silence. There are times to talk. We've seen this in Habakkuk. I think he teaches us there are times to lament. There are times to wrestle in prayer. There are. And there are times to let your words be few. There are times to be go before God and consider his word and respond in awed silence. Let all the earth be silent before him. And not just, by the way, silence of reverence and silence of awe, but silence of acceptance. Silence of faith. He's doing this for Habakkuk, don't you see? He says, okay, we've had a couple rounds of this debate. I've answered all your questions. I've told you my plans for Judah and for Babylon. I have nothing left to say to you. Now, trust me. I'm enthroned in the temple. You have enough information, Habakkuk. Trust me. And by the way, don't we have more information than Habakkuk? Should our trust not be even greater than his? I mean, we've seen how he has secured our redemption. We know of the extent of his love. We have been told more fully of our future. We, we, we have been assured of his gracious control of our life. Friends, we, we probably don't need more information. We probably just need to Trust the information we have. Be people of faith and maybe at times be silent. That we approach our God enthroned in heaven and we fall silent before him. I think of the, the great story with Jesus and the apostles in the storm at the sea. And, and as you know, the, the storm is raging and, and the apostles think they're going to die. And Jesus is taking a nap on, in the back of the boat and... and and, and they, they get worked up, and they wake up the master, and they say to him, don't they? Say, We're going to die. We are dying. Don't you see this? Don't you see what's happening to us? We're dying, and you're doing nothing. You're sleeping through it all. We're suffering, and you take a nap. And so Jesus gets up, doesn't he? And maybe he wipes the sleep out of his eyes, and... I don't know if he's anything like me getting up from a nap, a little bit of scowl, right? He's, probably, he's, of course, nothing like me in that, so maybe no scowl to erase that. He sends the storm away, right? Go away. And he turns to them. Remember what he says. He says, where is your faith? Not, mind you, you need faith. No, they, they already have faith. He just wants to know where they put it. Where is it? Where, where have you set it down? Right? Because you've seen what I can do. You spent three years with you. You know who I am. You know what I've done. You know my power. You know my goodness and my kindness to you. You think I'm just going to let you die in this, this storm like this? You, you know me. Right? Now use your faith. You have it. Use it. 
In the time of need, it's not in the time of need, the time of suffering, the time in which the storm is raging. Is that not when we need to use our faith? And Jesus says, where did you put it? Go get it. This is the time. In other words, what he's telling you, don't just look at the storm. Just don't gaze at the suffering. Just don't consider all the awful consequences of which you will face. He says, look at me. Have faith in me. You know what I've done. You know who I am. You know that I love you. Now connect that to your heart in the middle of trouble and trial. I love you. And I am enthroned. Trust me. And trust me, by the way, not just for today, but for where he will bring us tomorrow. You see, we rejoice in the triumph of the Lord. We think about his majesty, but we also think about the the victory of God. You see this in verse 14. We skipped over it, didn't we? This wonderful verse. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a day coming in which the glory of God is going to be seen and appreciated by everyone. In fact, verse 14 is kind of out of place, isn't it? Because we're reading along, and it's pretty heavy, and it's judgment, judgment, whoa, whoa, whoa. And in the middle of this, it's just, here's the glory of God. And I, I wonder if the relationship is that once the evil is defeated, once wickedness is removed then we'll be able to see God's glory. In fact, in some sense, God's glory already covers this world as the waters cover the sea. You know, it was Isaiah in Isaiah 6. You know that famous passage. He says, I stood, um, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne and high and lifted up and the train of the rope filled the temple and above him stood seraphim. And one called to the other. Remember what they said? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God's glory is everywhere. The whole earth is filled with it. But the problem is we don't see it. The problem is we miss it. And so he tells Habakkuk, not that my glory will cover, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. He says, you see it, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That everyone will know it and everyone will delight in it. Everyone will appreciate it. You see, there's really two options that God is giving us. There is judgment the wrath of God, or it is a world of God's glory. That's what you, there's a city of God that you can enter into by repentance and faith, by turning from your sin and yielding to him, or you could persist in your arrogance and you're keeping him away from you, and you will face his woes. This is why he says here in verse 4, the heart of this book, the righteous live by faith. The righteous will, will enter into this world filled with God's glory, the knowledge of God's glory by faith. Do you have faith in this God who's enthroned even now, even though the world looks like it's in utter chaos? Have you yielded your life to the Lord who came to this earth and died on the sin, on the cross for your sin? He says, bringing your sin upon himself that he might pay the penalty, might bear all these woes that are rightfully due to you. He puts them upon himself and he rises from the grave and he says, if you will yield your life to me as your king, I will save you and bring you into a world in which the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover as the waters cover the sea. By Faith, do you trust him? Have you yielded your life to him? Right? Because the other option, as you see in verse 13, is to labor merely for fire. It's to weary yourself for nothing. Right? What they're doing is they're working to fill the earth with their own glory. They hunger for their own glory, not God's. 
And, and those who hunger for their own glory, they're just going to be filled with shame. That's what verse 16, you notice this contrast between shame and glory mentioned twice. You, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory, right? You, you live for glory, your own glory, your own reputation, but you're actually going to be filled with shame. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision, right? That's the shame. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and here's the consequence. Utter shame will come upon your glory, Right? And, and, and so you're, you're going to be, though you live, for, you live for your glory, it's just fire. It's just going to be burned up. It's vanity. It's going to be brought to shame because the cup of God will be brought to you, the cup of God's wrath. And it's hard to read that, isn't it, without thinking of what our Lord prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said three times, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, not my will, your will be done. You see, this cup that is reserved for those who refuse God's grace was received by Jesus. He drank the cup, and what happened to him? He drank the cup, and just as verse 16 says, he was exposed. He who deserves glory was filled with shame, so that we who deserve to be shamed, who rightfully have earned our own shame, even though we live for our own glory, are given God's glory. He takes our shame upon himself, and he takes his glory, and he gives it to us. We have total acceptance by him. And I'm telling you, if, you, if we would recognize God's love and acceptance, that he has, he has done everything for us and he has covered us with his honor, we would live differently. Our lives would be different. We, we, we would walk into rooms thinking not, okay, who do I want to talk to? Who's going to bless me? We would walk into a room and think, okay, who, who can I serve? Who needs me? Who needs a word? How can I help someone? Because I'm, we're no longer living for ourselves. We're living, we have everything we need in God. So we're living for others. You know, in, in the year uh, 1905, there was a revival in Korea. Um, and maybe revival is not the right word, because at this time, Korea virtually had no Christians in it. And within uh, a couple decades, Korea became the most Christian nation in the world by population, by percentage. Um, and it all started in 1905. And, and if, you, if you study the Korean revivals, you, you, what, what was going on is that these Korean men and women were confessing their sin publicly. This is what kind of characterized the revival. And they would say, I, I lied to this person, or I wronged this person, or I stole from my boss. And they confessed, and they wept over their sins. Now, what's amazing is that Korea is a very traditional culture. And in a traditional culture, the, the thing that matters most in life, in America, it's mostly freedom and self, um, you know, uh, following, following your own desires, being who you, who you want to be and all that. But in Korea, it's all about family. It's all about the honor you bring to your family. It's all about the honor you bring to your people. The worst thing in Korea, therefore, is to lose face. And so how come in a culture that, that puts honor above everything, these people are not paralyzed by losing that honor in confessing sin? How come they're not paralyzed by the shame they'll bring upon themselves and their family? And the only answer is because Jesus has already taken their shame. You see that? He... He clothes them in his honor. And so it no longer matters what other people think about me. Because I have God's honor. I, 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 he, he, is, he has drunk the cup for me, and then he has, he has pleased with me, and he has accepted me because I have yielded my life to him by faith. So we don't need to seek our, our own honor. We don't need to live for our own glory. We can serve and give and sacrifice. In fact, the only glory that will ever satisfy your heart is not your own glory. It's not people just building you up. The only glory that will ever satisfy you is that of God's. And one day you're going to bathe in it. 
One day you're going to live in a world and just in the midst of it. See, God has determined the terminal point in human history. And when the tale is entirely told, all will see, we'll all see how every event in every era has all served together to ultimately spread the glory of God all over this world. In fact, it's promised from old. We look in this world and think it's in chaos. And where, what are you doing, God? And, and where is the church well, you know, God promised to take out of a stump something that's dead, right? He's going to come, what? A shoot, a branch that yields fruit. And that fruit is described by Isaiah when he says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leper shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, of him the nation shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This Habakkuk 2 is just it's so dark, and it's bloodshed, and it's wrath, and it's judgment, and it's nakedness. And there's verse 14, there's like this, in the middle of this storm, there's a flash of lightning. It lights up, and we see victories coming. And I hope that we can look to the end in times of trouble, that you could find comfort even in that. And if, my friends, if you're walking through suffering right now, hold on to this truth. There's coming a day when the pain and, and the hurt will fade away and the glory of God will fill all of the earth and the gospel will be carried to all of creation. For he who said, let light shine out of darkness will give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you, on that day, it will be beyond dispute that God is good and God is right and God is holy and God is just and God is therefore worthy of all your praise and all your love and all your worship and he is worthy of your faith. And so in troubled times, look to that day, look to the end for the righteous live by faith. Our Father, Help us to have that faith. Not just have it, help us to use it. We know these truths. Help us to connect the truths in which we know to the trouble in which we experience. That we might live out our trust in you. We, we think your judgment is good and right. And even if we struggle with it, one day we will not. We pray for those here who have yet to yield their life to you. We ask that you would help them to consider that these are not my words. These are your words. This is your authority. They might wrestle with what they heard today. They might even now, in light of these truths, yield their life to you in faith and saying, I, I surrender. Forgive me. I yield my life to you. I trust you they too might know what it's like to live in a world filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Help us to live for that day. Help us to live in light of that day. In a world of trouble, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.